What is up? Welcome to the Nutrition Awareness Podcast. My name is Kate, registered dietitian and emotional eating coach. Each episode, I will bring you a motivational message or an inspiring guest to help you make informed nutrition decisions that fuel your life, not restrict it. Whether you are new to the podcast or an OG listener, thanks for spending this time with me today. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to the Nutrition Awareness Podcast. This is Megan Ware, Registered Dietitian, and I'm here with Kate. Hey guys! We're both here today, so super special treat for you guys. And today we are talking about something super frustrating and something that we hear from pretty much all of our clients, and that is, why is there so much information that's conflicting out there about nutrition? Yeah, actually, I just had a client leave and we had this discussion because it's like you hear one thing from somebody and you think it sounds awesome. It makes perfect sense when they're telling you, hey, this is how you should eat. This is how you should exercise. This is how you should live your life. Two weeks later, you hear somebody else just as credible telling you almost the complete opposite. It can be a bit mind blowing sometimes. Yeah, the battling PhD. So it's it's not necessarily people that are out there putting out the wrong information. It's people that are really, really smart, and one's telling you to be a raw vegan, and the other one's telling you to never, ever eat a carbohydrate ever again. So we are kind of doing a little debate today and talking about if there is a perfect way to eat, in fact. Is there a perfect way to eat? If only. If only it were that easy. It's kind of like... Just on the topic of weddings, finding a wedding dress, is there a perfect wedding dress? Well, there's probably a perfect one for you, and then there's a probably a per- totally different one that's perfect for somebody else. So whatever, it's kind of the same way with diets. You know, one might fit somebody else beautifully, perfectly. It intertwines with their lifestyle amazingly. It helps them get closer to their goals, to their vision, where for somebody else, something completely different, the total opposite, is going to be a better fit. The challenge is trying on all the diets, right, or trying on all the dresses to see which one fits you perfectly and fits your lifestyle without without a much of a compromise. And I think one of the one of the main reasons why this happens is because nutrition is still in its infancy when we talk about it as a science. It's the Wild West out there. The way that nutrition studies are done often really surprises people. So Sometimes I have some of my really sciencey clients that'll send me articles and say, hey, this article says that if you eat red meat twice a week, you are 34 times more likely to have prostate cancer. So the way that we come up with any of these recommendations from studies are all observational. So you can't take somebody, put them in a lab, lock them in and keep them there for the next 30 years and monitor what they're eating. It's just, it's impossible. It'd be a very expensive study and no one would want to do it. So instead we we rely on observations where we'll take either a large population of people and just kind of watch them and see what happens over the next 30 years, ask them what they ate, which in and of itself is a problem because most of the time you can't even remember what you ate yesterday let alone if somebody asks you, how many times did you eat bacon in the last four weeks? Or how many times did you have chicken breast? Oftentimes, people will report what they think the other person wants to hear, or they're more likely to report their good habits and forget their bad habits 
for example, oh yeah, I forgot that I had a cheeseburger late at 10 p.m. last Wednesday. I'm not going to remember that stuff, but I am going to remember that I went to the gym. And I'm probably going to remember that I went more times than I actually went to the gym. So oftentimes the reporting is off and then we take that data to say, hey, this person who told us that they ate more chicken and they ate less red meat, well, those people were less likely to have prostate cancer. So that's where those recommendation com- recommendations come from. So the science is kind of wonky the way that we are doing things, which sucks, but this is why we're talking about this today and how you can kind of figure out what the perfect diet is for you without necessarily taking all those headlines into account and thinking you have to change your whole life. That is such the issue too that I feel even I as a nutrition professional can fall a little bit victim to because you see an alarming headline that says eggs are bad for you, eggs are going to kill you because the media of course they fluff up, fluff up everything so that you click it, right? It's all about clickbait. They want you to read their articles, they want you to stay on their website. So they take a headline and they twist it to make it sound way more intense than it is. And usually it's based off one study. And like Megan was saying, those studies are very observational. A lot of times they take very specific populations as well that they measure that might not even be applicable to who's ever reading it. So you open up the headline, you read the news article, it links to the actual research study. Most people aren't going to take the time to really look at the research study and see how the study was set up who it specifically targeted or looked at, and then they just make this assumption that, oh, okay, that this news channel is telling me that I can't ever eat eggs again, I'm never going to have this for breakfast anymore, so instead I'm just going to go to get a donut from Krispy Kreme, <laughs> right? Because eggs are going to kill me, right? Because so, it's frustrating. Why, why not just go get a donut at this point? Because for the past 10 years, I've been told that eggs were good for me again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. And so then it's just easy to blame everything on whatever that headline is saying. It's like, well, maybe the reason I can't lose these last 10 pounds is because I'm eating red meat or whatever it is. Or maybe the reason why my dad got sick was because of this reason. You can't always tie it to one singular food, but those headlines and those studies sometimes make it easy to overhype the potential negative health impacts that a certain dietary habit may have on someone. And on the flip side, they can overhype the positive impact a certain food may have. I mean, we always hear about superfoods and people think, well, now if I start adding chia seeds to my oatmeal, then all my problems are going to be solved because I've been reading about how amazing they are. Well, yeah, chia seeds are great, but they're not going to be the cure-all just because one specific study or research article said that they were. Yeah, I think um, that, that made me think of some studies that were done with fiber and cardiovascular disease and a lot of the information out there... Now people think, well, I need to eat more fiber because it's healthy for my heart. But it's not fiber. It's not the number of grams of fiber that you're eating in a day that makes your heart healthier. It's the actual foods that have fiber in them that eating them makes your heart healthier. So you take this headline that says, if this person eats 30 grams of fiber in a day, they're less likely to have heart disease. So you go and buy Metamucil or you go and buy... 10 bags of chia seeds and you add them to everything and you think, well, now I have at least 30 grams of fiber in my diet, so I'm less likely to have heart disease. But what gets lost in that is the common sense. We forget that we naturally know what to eat. You naturally know that an apple is not so bad for you. Like you picked it from a tree, you didn't do anything to mess that up, it didn't go through any processing, it's not in a box or a bag, doesn't even have a nutrition label, but inherently you know 
that apple's probably not not so bad for me. Just like you know, fried Fritos that come in a bag probably aren't that good for you. But we tend to use these research studies to make us believe things that aren't necessarily true and aren't common sense. So always just go back to your common sense. And if you don't know where we're coming from with that egg thing, in the past few months, a study came out that said that, so I would say like past 10 years or so, we've been back on the side of cholesterol doesn't matter in food. Cholesterol in food doesn't necessarily raise the cholesterol in your body. And so eggs were back on the table. And then just in the past few months, another study came out that said, well, eggs are actually bad for you again, and they do raise cholesterol. But if you really read that article and you really read the study, even the author himself says all of these studies that we've done with eggs are inconclusive. Even the the author of the study said, we don't know. So where I go back to is, what does your common sense say? Mm -hmm. Okay, my common sense says... If I don't eat six of these things in a day, I'm probably going to be fine, but it comes from a chicken. I didn't screw it up in any way. If the chicken's eating good food, if I get a pasture-raised chicken that's eating grass and bugs, I'm probably going to be okay with eating a couple eggs a week. But if I then take that egg, add cheddar cheese to it, put it on a white English muffin, and then drink it with a coffee full of sugar... I think that's a totally different story, and that also gets lost in those inf- in those observational studies where we ask, how many eggs a week are you eating? Well, we don't know if that's in a McGriddle, I don't even know if those have eggs, but you know what I'm saying, or is that at home with a bunch of spinach and red peppers and onions mixed in? Yeah, exactly. You can't just point to one food and say it's, you can't demonize just one single food all by itself. It's a whole big picture, and The big picture doesn't even come from diet alone. It's the lifestyle, the environment, the stress levels, the sleep levels of that person. So maybe the group of people eating a certain food are having health consequences, but you can't just tie it to one food because maybe they all have certain patterns in the way of their their living. Maybe they live in a certain area where the environment isn't very clean and they're inhaling things in the air that just aren't good for them and therefore that's influencing the study. I mean, you can get really in your head about these things, but at the end of the day, like Megan said, use your common sense. If you're eating a high quality food that's coming from nature, if it's coming from animals, if it's coming from a quality source versus those fried Fritos, well, it's, it's not going to be in the world. Look at the big picture and, and use your common sense. Um, so I, This can even get frustrating, I think, for nutrition professionals. So not only just your normal everyday person, but even us like we're doing our research and we're finding research that says the exact opposite of what the other research says this has even happened to me at nutrition conferences where i've gone from one session where the researcher presented that having a slow digesting protein before bed would help you to develop more lean muscle mass and then i went to another session later in the day on intermittent fasting, which said that taking at least a 14-hour window off from eating, so not having anything before bed, the direct opposite, would help to build lean muscle mass. <laughs> so how do you take that? What do you do? What do you do with that information? And I think instead of getting frustrated and saying, well, hell with it, I'm just not going to do any of these things, you have to figure out which one of those two things makes more sense to you. So 
do you do a really late workout and then you feel like you need something to help you recover after? Well, then I think maybe having a slow digesting protein makes sense for you. Or are you the type of person that you got your workout in in the morning and you're burning most of your calories throughout the day? At night, you're kind of sitting around watching Netflix, doing whatever. Maybe that 14-hour window off from digestion would be better for you. Mm, That's such a good point, too, to point out, okay, what is going to work best for you? And then staying consistent with that certain choice that you choose for long enough that you can tell if there's a difference or not. I feel like a big problem with a lot of these conflicting studies and claims that we hear is that we hear one, we do it for two weeks, and then we hear another one and we completely scrap the other option we're doing and switch to a new option and we can never really measure which pattern of eating is actually giving us results because we're flip-flopping all the time because we're hearing different things. It makes it very difficult for the consumer to stay consistent and for nutrition professionals to stay consistent with their recommendations. It can be like like you said, the wild, wild west. You never really know what's going to happen. So staying consistent with one and measuring your own personal progress or results or changes is not always the most glamorous solution because it takes time. And as humans, especially in this day and age, we want instant results. We want to see a change right away. But sticking with something and staying consistent can really give you a good idea of whether it's the right option for you. And then also really defining what consistency mm-hmm. means. So for me, I think everything needs at least 12 weeks to determine whether it's helping you get closer to your goals or pushing you further away. So for example, with that 14-hour window that we were talking about, all that means is that you take 14 hours where you're not digesting anything, including your sleep. So you'd be done eating at 6 p.m. and you don't start eating again until 8 a.m., You need to do that for 12 weeks before you decide this is helping me or this is hurting me. Because if you do it for three days, yeah, it's annoying probably for that first three days. And you're not able to really tell whether that gave you a result or not. One of the most common things that people will tell me is that gluten bothers me. Or I have a problem digesting gluten. Or I get bloated when I eat gluten. What I always ask people is like, well, what else are you eating with that gluten? You probably notice those things because when you are eating foods with gluten, maybe it's a donut, maybe it's fast food, maybe it's pizza, maybe it's lasagna, maybe it's bread, and these things that maybe you do feel bloated bloated after, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the gluten. So if you really truly believe you have a gluten intolerance, don't half-ass it. Take 12 weeks off from gluten to see how you feel and if that does make a difference for you so you can now definitively say... Maybe that 12 weeks is going to be hard for you, but you can say either yes or no, Mm -hmm. this made a difference. What made you pick 12 weeks? Just curious. Just because it's enough time for you to go through, um, usually like some kind of a trip is going to happen once in three weeks or in three months at least. Usually it's enough of a seasonal change where if you start at February and then March, April, May, you're going through that amount of time too. So it just seems to be, seems to me that two months wasn't really enough time, but three months is enough time where you've gone through some different things in your life to decide whether this is maintainable and whether this really makes a difference Mm. for me. Gotcha. Yeah, I never really thought of it from that perspective, but I think that's a good plan. I mean, the longer you can go before even reintroducing something like that again to see if there's a difference, the more, you know, accurate your your conclusions can be. You know, it's one thing to just go a week without gluten and reintroduce it. I mean, it might not even be out of your system completely within a week, which seems to happen to a lot of people. Right. Yep. 
And then the other part of that is too is like figuring out why you're making that change in the first place mm-hmm. or like for example if you hear somebody talking about how being a raw vegan is the best thing ever in the whole world and it helped them with all of these things and their autoimmune disease and their kidney failure and all of these things and you're like oh man maybe I should be a raw vegan too I think we all kind of get caught up in that but really taking a step back to ask like do I need to be a raw vegan? Like, what are my goals? What mm-hmm. what is what is, What's the purpose that this person did this for? And what is my purpose? And does this make sense for my family to eat like a raw vegan? Am I going to have to make completely different meals than everybody else? And what is my life going to look like five years from now? If you can't be a raw vegan five years from now, don't be one now. Yeah, don't even waste five minutes on it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good point too. And I like to ask people this, especially now that the keto diet is really popular. And that seems to be the thing that everyone keeps bringing up, you know, then they quote unquote have tried everything for so long and nothing works. But then they hear about somebody's brother did keto and he lost weight so fast, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, sure. Let's explore that idea. Let's explore the reason A, why do you want to start a diet? And I would say I have a lot of people kind of fluff up their real reason and try to make it just seem like, oh, you know, I just want to be healthier, yada, yada. What it all comes down to is most people just want to lose weight and they want to do it quickly. So let's uncover that reason. And it's okay to admit that. I mean, we all want instant gratification. We all want to lose weight fast. We all want results quicker than not, but that's just not the way the world works, especially in the realm of sustainable weight loss. So let's figure out the reason why and be honest about that. Then we have to be honest with ourselves about other things like, hey, how is this going to impact your quality of life? Like for instance, with the ketogenic diet, Sure, that can work for somebody that maybe doesn't have a whole family to feed or maybe doesn't go on a lot of social outings, but for someone who does have kids and a husband or wife that doesn't want to eat that way, and then they also like to go out on the weekends to dinner, and then a lot of their job requires them to go to luncheons or happy hours, well, how is the ketogenic going to work for you long term? All right, so let's if that's not going to work for you, if you don't think it's going to work, well, there's other ways to eat healthy and lose weight that are going to fit your lifestyle that makes sense for you, even though it made sense to go on a different diet for, you know, whoever found success with keto. It doesn't mean just because somebody finds results with one way of eating doesn't mean it's always going to be a one size fit all diet for everybody. I think one of the ways that you can tell whether a health practitioner is trustworthy or not, whether they're a dietitian or a doctor or a personal trainer or any kind of person that's giving you any kind of advice, really, if they only have one way Mm -hmm. of doing things and they're hell-bent that every single person should do it this way, that's when you know you should run away Mm -hmm. and run away quickly. Oh, yeah. If somebody has an agenda that they're trying to push on you secretly, you can pick up on it. I mean, use your intuition. I see this a lot on social media platforms where now everybody has some sort of health or nutrition title, it seems. And they'll, you know, they'll literally only cherry pick research that is in favor of their viewpoint. And you can tell that they're very strong. Because you can do that very easily. You can find 85 studies to back up any kind of statement that you want to make. The studies are out there to back it up. Oh my gosh, 100%. I mean, you can literally find whatever you're looking for. You can just look and see who sponsored it too. If you I mean, I don't know if people know this, but you can look at a research study and always check and see who sponsored the funding for it because a lot of times that might 
make the findings a little bit more biased. So if some sort of vegan organization sponsored a study that found that the vegan diet is the best diet for whatever specific condition that they're researching for, just take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it might be a great option, but just take it with a grain of salt that it was sponsored by somebody who is clearly when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply biased and i mean i know if you get on twitter people get in full out wars over research i heard joe rogan once say that twitter is like a garbage can on fire and it is especially in the realm of nutrition maybe it's just because i'm only following nutrition people on twitter and i'm just silently watching but people will literally fire research at each other that just contradicts you know, whatever the other person posted. I mean, it's almost hilarious, but it's also stress-inducing. I mean, I have to get myself off there sometimes because I'm like, okay, I have a stance on this. Why am I letting these crazy people who don't even have real certifications try to influence my own professional opinion? But it's because they're just finding whatever they want to prove in the form of research and just putting it out there for us to, to eat up. I can almost guarantee that if you're in the nutrition world and you take a hard stance on something, you're going to get knocked on your face at some point because it is such a young science. And if, if you were the type of person, you know, back in the 80s and you said fat is the worst thing in the world for you, eat everything fat free. Well, are you still saying that today? I can guarantee that you're not. And like I said, that's how you know you need to run the other way. If someone takes a hard and fast stance and they won't budge either way, like that is science. And don't don't look at it as like, well, I can't trust anybody now. It's not it's not about that. It's about us finding out new things. And when we find out new things, we'll try to incorporate that into our practice. But I think the biggest thing is making sure that someone's not just trying to push the keto or push the vegan or push these specific shakes or push the specific workout routine as the only thing that works for people because it doesn't exist. Spoiler alert, it it doesn't exist. It'd be a lot easier if it existed. I don't think you and I would have jobs. If no, there was a- <laughs> I, yeah, right, exactly. If it It'd was just one thing that you know that everybody had to follow, then then yeah, it wouldn't exist. But there's so many factors. It's your genetics play a role in it. So even before you were born, that part plays a big role. Your environment, the way that you grew up around food, how your parents were about food, what your cravings are like, what your daily mm-hmm. schedule is like, what your workout routine is like, if you're an athlete. All of these things play a huge role in what's going to work best for you. So for anyone to say that this one thing will work for this athlete and also this person with diabetes, that to me is makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And that that's what also gets really frustrating too online is you see people and you don't really know their credentials or maybe they have some sort of medical credential but they're really interested in nutrition and they had an experience that maybe they had a, a client or a patient or somebody that had an experience with a certain diet and then they are always talking about that specific way of eating and they kind of make it seem 
overhyped and that it's the one way to eat and this is how everyone should do it everyone should try it blah 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 because it works vegans <laughs> oh megan's in here throwing shade well, and carnivores too so i can't really it's not just the people that eat plants it's it's also, the one-sided people exactly it's the extremists exactly. and if you look at any other sort of topic of interest in the public <laughs> this is exactly the same thing that goes on i mean I don't want to bring politics and religion in here, but you guys can use your imagination yep. and see that it's the same issue. If somebody has a real passion for something, a lot of times that's tied to their emotions. They have some sort of emotional tie with a certain way of eating or a certain diet or a certain political party affiliation or religion. And when people's emotions get involved, well, sometimes that can kind of cloud their open-mindedness or their judgment, and they want to share their experience with everyone because it worked right for them. I mean, somebody maybe found so much success on the vegan diet and they turned all their numbers around they lost weight they want to share it with everyone but you got to be a little bit careful with with, as a consumer or as another health professional when you read these things and say okay let's look at the big picture let's try to translate what their experience was for somebody else with a totally different experience and understand that their emotions are tied into this for good reason but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else has to have the same i don't know spiritual awakening from eating a plant only diet and you have to realize that shoving your opinions down someone's throat whether it's in politics nutrition or whatever it is really isn't changing anyone's opinion it's only it's the people that disagree with you are going to talk shit and the people that agree with you are going to throw their hands in the air and clap but those people in the middle aren't moving either way <laughs> they're you're not convincing them by just right ramming it down your their throats you're you're not you're not going to convince anybody to be a vegan that way sorry it's just not going to (laughs) happen and yeah I would agree that I would agree to that very much I think the best way if you are trying to get someone to consider to make a diet change is to just ask them open-ended questions like what do you really want what is your end goal how do you like to eat what changes can you make whether big or small to lean you in a direction or an eating pattern that's going to get you closer to your goals. And for most people, that doesn't mean anything really extreme. extreme right? Yep. And I think the thing that that's not to like toot our own horns, but I think the thing that's really cool about us is that we are open to discussing all of these things. So I know it sounds like I'm bad-mouthing vegans because I keep bringing that up, but I've worked with plenty of vegans. and You were a vegan. Do- yeah, exactly. I mean, I've done the vegan diet. Like, I've... I'm down for it. I'm 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 here I'm here to help you with that if that's the eating pattern that you want to take on. Like I am here to help you do that in the most healthy way possible and there's nothing wrong with that, but I do not believe that every single person on this earth should be a vegan because I don't believe that they would thrive in the best way possible. You know what's interesting too is I've heard a lot of doctors and a lot of uh, dietitians and people in the nutrition field talk about how, and I've experienced this with myself too, and I think you can attest to it, where maybe for a while a certain pattern of eating that was extreme, you know, relative to other eating patterns worked for a while, Mm, but then you started to experience negative side effects. So for instance, with a, let's take a different spin, with a ketogenic diet, for a while people felt really energized, they were losing weight, all these things were happening, it was smooth sailing, until it wasn't. Yes. Right? Somewhere, some people hit a block, they hit a wall, and then all of a sudden the diet doesn't work for them anymore, and then they feel the need to just throw in the towel because they're all or nothing. So if they say, well, you know what, screw it, if this doesn't work for me, why do I even try? And they go back to eating the sad diet, the standard American diet, and gain all their weight back and 
if not more, and feel worse than they ever did. And that can be kind of an issue for some of the extreme diets if people aren't committed to making it a lifestyle or if they don't anticipate or they're not open to making dietary changes down the line when when they hit a wall, when they hit a block. Because, I mean, with the vegan diet, I've heard the same thing. There was a doctor I was reading, uh, he felt really, really, really great on the vegan diet for almost a decade. And then he started to notice that he just felt weak and tired and it had been a slow progression or a slow digression of energy. And it wasn't until he started adding some more animal products back in, nothing drastic, nothing changed or nothing crazy. But then that's when he noticed a change in his energy and he started to feel better. And so he found, okay, maybe the vegan diet really helped me at this time in my life, but something changed where I have to be more open-minded and more flexible and really prioritize my health and well-being over everything. And if that means adding a little bit of more nutrition from different sources in my diet, then so be it. You got to be open-minded. People don't stay the same throughout their entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's like what works for you in your teens isn't necessarily going to work for you in your 20s, which isn't going to work for you in your 30s, 40s, or 50s. So it's okay to change throughout time. And, and sometimes I'll have clients that say, well, I ate this way when I was in college and that really worked for me and that's the best I ever felt. And then I, I okay, well, now you have three kids, you still have a full-time job you have a husband, you have all of these things in your life that are different from when you were a college kid and you didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities and you got to go to the gym for three hours a day Mm -hmm. if you wanted to. So while what you're saying, like maybe that was the perfect thing for you then, that changes throughout time. So even if you have found the perfect thing for you, keep in mind that that's a good thing for you to think to go back to as maybe a framework, but also don't hold yourself to that standard of when you were 20 or when you were 40. If it was 10 or 15 years ago, you may have to adjust that based on your likes, your dislikes, your environment, and your routine now. Oh yeah, I mean the best example of that would be if you have kids. You can see kids can eat sugar and run around and not, (laughs) they look great, they feel awesome, they have no changes. And then when you get throughout life you're like oh wait I can't get away with eating like this anymore and it only continues for some people now there's always going to be those exceptions to the rule I mean we all know somebody who just maintains a perfectly lean physique and they've been eating like crap their whole life and for some reason they maintain that healthy physique kudos to them who knows what's going on on the inside those people are the exceptions not the rules so just be open-minded that hey whatever eating pattern worked for you back then may not be the eating pattern that works for you right now. And the eating pattern that works for you right now might not be the best in five years. So it's important to stay open-minded and flexible and constantly challenge yourself to try new things and and push yourself in ways to make change to see if it can really get you to where you need to be. Because I think we get a little bit comfortable in the comfortable and it can be hard to, to break some of the dietary patterns and habits that we've cultivated over the years. And, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean bottom line is just know that we get it. We we get that there's so much conflicting information out there and that's what we love to do when we see people one on one is kind of break those things down and kind of understand the person and why they want to make these certain changes. And we understand that it can be frustrating, but what we want to want you to keep in mind is that you are an individual with individual needs. And so take it, take every single thing that you hear from here on out in the nutrition world, in the medical world, under that lens of I'm an individual, like 
who are these people that they were studying? How did they do this research in the first place? And does this apply to me? And am I using my common sense? Let me take a step back. And am I using my common sense here? Because you'll get headlines like, now exercise has been proven to make you gain 20 pounds per year or something, you know, something ridiculous where you're thinking like, but exercise is healthy for me. (laughs) And then you listen to the news article and they just put some kind of spin on the research. But you know deep down inside mm-hmm. that that's just, if you believe that, that's just an excuse for you to not go exercise. Because, well, I heard it's going to make me gain 20 pounds a year if I do go to the gym. Like, no, absolutely not. You know deep down inside that exercising is healthy for you. So don't let those headlines push you in any direction. Put your little thinking cap on and <laughs> use your common sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... But let's think about this. Sometimes people's common sense can be a little bit variable, right? So that's where it's really important to have a discussion with someone and say, okay, we hear, okay, of course, exercise is really, really helpful for you. But what kind of exercise are you doing? And what kind of exercise is this study pointing to? Are they saying something really high intensity that's breaking down the body for hours and hours a day? Or is the exercise you're doing more low impact and actually helping you be healthy? So really take a look at that too and say, all right, well, what is the study saying specifically? How is that compared to what I'm doing? And how can I translate this into my life? Do I really need to make a change? Probably not. Or with things like that are trying to push certain foods or things on you, like all of those red wine studies. Mm. Like if you drink red wine, you'll be healthier because this, this, and the other thing. Well, what else are these people consuming? Is it that they studied someone who was on a Mediterranean-style diet where they're eating lots of fish, lots of non-processed foods, and they're having one glass of wine with their dinner? Well, of course they're going to be healthier than that standard American diet. That doesn't necessarily mean that for you, you eat the standard American diet and now you add some red wine, you're not going to be getting that same benefit. So always look at those studies (laughs) through the lens of you and you as the individual. That's like the French paradox, right? Yes. They talk about people in Europe and they are eating, or not eating, well, they're eating different things too, obviously, but they're drinking alcohol throughout the day. They're enjoying a few glasses of red wine and they're a lot healthier. They have cheese. Yeah, they're yeah they're having all the things, and they're maintaining a leaner physique, and they have lower rates of heart disease, and so we look at that, we're like we draw one I conclusion. I need to eat cheese. And I need to drink wine. <laughs> right, it's like what am I doing with this stupid water bottle? <laughs> but it's also when you look at the European lifestyle, it's a lot less stressful. They're walking around a lot more. They're not sedentary like Americans are. Their exercise is a lot of walking, a lot of low impact fat burning things I guess to say so you look at all these factors and we just want to look at the one thing we want to see which is wine is healthy (laughs) which sure it's got uh antioxidant in it called resveratrol that's healthful for you but like Megan said adding that one glass of wine isn't going to solve all your problems are you walking to the market every day and getting your bread (laughs) fresh like are you are you going and getting your vegetables from the market every day and then putting together a dinner like this French person that's drinking wine is? No, you're not. Are you going out and picking your own grapes for wine? No? Okay, well then you can't, then you can't just say adding wine to your diet is going to give you the same benefit. I feel like wine is having, I mean, wine's always been good, but I feel like wine is having such a moment right now in our society. Like everywhere you go, you see little, you know, decorative towels or little 
wine glasses yeah, that have yeah, yeah. some little joke on it that like says why whine about it just have your <laughs> wine you know or mommy needs a glass of wine it's becoming Rose. such a thing Rose is such a thing Rosé's not even good. <laughs> I love me a sparkling rosé okay, in Ross. the spring, so <laughs> I can't say anything about that. But bottom line with alcohol is you're low-level poisoning your body every time you drink it, and you can't say, uh, no matter what it is, alcohol is a poison to your system, whether it's a white claw, a glass of rosé, or a tequila shot, alcohol is poison to your system, so... There's no way around that. I hate to be a buzzkill, but that's <laughs> A literal buzzkill. Literally. But, <laughs> but that's, that's true and that's life. So in, I don't think really think there's any way that adding alcohol to your repertoire is going to make you yeah. a healthier person. You can't justify it like that. I mean... I would say to somebody right now, if they are at a, if they're feeling healthy, if they're at a comfortable weight, if they like where they are and they're already enjoying a glass of wine every so often, don't, don't worry don't, about yeah, it. Yeah, don't worry about it. But don't add any more. Exactly. Don't I heard this more. study, so I have to add three glasses per week because that's what the study told <laughs> me to do. Right. You go to your book club and all the ladies are like, oh, let's have a glass of wine. It's healthy for me. Right. Ha ha ha. some dark chocolate. <laughs> right. Dark chocolate. <laughs> Wait, that is such a, know, such a woman thing. thing. Yes, uh, we all say it. Yeah, and we're all like, we all know deep down, we're like, nope. This is not right. <laughs> nope, not true. Go home with your veggie tray, Susan. No one wants you here. <laughs> Didn't you hear the news? All right, so let's wrap this up. So, Kate, is there a perfect diet for everybody? Nope, hard no. Hard no. <laughs> That's a no for hard me, no. dog. So, so hopefully from this podcast, you've learned a little bit about um, where nutrition studies come from. I think that's that's the biggest thing that a lot of people don't realize, where we're actually getting our information from and why a lot of times you just have to take mm-hmm. it with a grain of salt. And that's why what we do is we learn about the individual and from working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people we are able to kind of put you into a pattern that we think is going to work best for you and change and tweak that as we go along and as you go along throughout life and challenges come up. So that's what we found really works best for our clients and don't take a headline and change your life because Mm -hmm. of it. Just know that you are an individual, your genetics are different from your sister, even your sister's friend and just because one person did well on one diet and you fail on it, that's not a failure on you. It just wasn't right for you. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Just because a diet's trendy right now doesn't mean you have to automatically pick it up. It might not work for you. What you are doing now might be the best option, so don't feel like you need to switch to a certain way of eating. And, you know, there was something else I wanted to ask you. I know we said we're going to wrap it up, but I think listeners might find this interesting as well. Really, What's really trendy right now seems to be intuitive eating. And mm. it seems to be one of these things that... Certain people are saying, like, this can work for everyone. Intuitive eating is for everybody. It's awesome. It's wonderful. I know you and I kind of have a similar view on intuitive eating, and I wouldn't, I'm not against it. I don't really have a bone to pick with it, per se. I do. <laughs> she said I it. Do. But, yeah. But, like, it, it's, it's a great concept, but it's not for everybody either. And I think for a lot of people, they just are reading all these things like, oh, I want to be an intuitive eater, and then they end up feeling worse because they don't exactly understand what it is. 
What are your What are your thoughts on that? I've seen over and over and over again people that come in, they read the intuitive eating book, and they say, well, this didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And I just went crazy, and I ate all the ice cream that was in my freezer. They told me to put nine cartons of ice cream in my freezer, and mm-hmm. then they told me I wouldn't eat it, and I ate it anyways. <laughs> and I was in tune with my body, and my body told me to eat the damn ice cream that was in the freezer. <laughs> And what's really, truly missing from that is that person never learned how to properly fuel their body. They didn't learn that, hey, if you get up in the morning and you eat a piece of white toast and it's all carbohydrate and then for lunch you have a sandwich and then by the time you get home at 3 o'clock you're going to be craving more sugar Mm -hmm. because you only had carbohydrate all day. Mm -hmm. You didn't have protein, you didn't have healthy fats, you didn't have the right balance of micronutrients. Until you can get the right balance of nutrients in your body, your body is still going to send you signals over and over and over again that it's hungry. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only way your body knows to tell you to get it something. And so if you're not giving your body the right things, but yet you're trying so hard to tune into what it wants, you're not tuning into the right things because your body's still sending you signals in overdrive. So first, you need to learn specifically what the right balance of nutrients is are for your body and then we can continue to work on Mm -hmm. tuning into those cues even more to figure out what's going to work best for you specifically totally i think there i heard a word for it the other day and i'm totally adopting it informed eating it's informed eating when Mm. you can be informed about why the food choices you're making are making you feel a certain way or crave a certain thing then you can use that information to make the best decisions so like you said if somebody is constantly craving sugar or whatever because they're not dumping good nutrition on themselves early in the morning and they're wondering why am i going for the ice cream well you might not be informed about how your cupcake for breakfast disguised as a muffin really made you feel so yeah. Right, and even something like like an avocado toast, for example. And you look at that and you're like, oh, that's that's really good for me. And it's just bread with avocado, but you're hungry two hours later. And so intuitively, if you're, if you're listening to that and you're like, well, my body's telling me to go get a Diet Coke because now my energy levels are low. Okay, so you get the Diet Coke, your energy levels come up for a little while, and then you're wanting to go down to your neighbor's desk and grab the little mini Snickers out of that because your body is telling you to do that. Well, what I want to teach you is why your body is telling you to do that. I want to go through each one of those meals, teach you why those reactions are happening, and then the intuitive eating can happen after that. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Just wanted to throw that little part yep, in there. <laughs> Maybe we'll make another episode all about that. Let us know if you guys would be interested on a topic all about intuitive eating and informed eating and a real thought out episode about that because we will bring it to you other than that we will for real this time wrap it up so thank you guys for tuning in to this episode and megan any last words do we have an ending yet like signing out (laughs) i recorded an outro that i will play and i haven't listened to it in a month but i'm pretty sure it says all those things so okay that's it bye guys Hey guys, Megan here. Have you heard of intermittent fasting? Have you thought about trying it or you've already tried it? Are you curious about the benefits of intermittent fasting? Or are you already convinced about the benefits but you've struggled to make it part of your routine? Well, we have come up with a free resource for you. Go to go.orlandodietitian.com 
slash intermittent fasting to get your free guide to intermittent fasting. Again, that's go.orlandodietitian.com slash intermittent fasting to get all of your questions answered. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode was helpful. For topic requests or to apply to be a featured guest, please email kate at orlandodietitian.com. Want more nutrition awareness? Check out our blog for recipes, nutrition tips and tricks, as well as product recommendations. Our website is www.orlandodietitian.com. Dietitian is spelled D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N. This has been Dietitian Kate, and until next time, keep it real and keep it healthy. sitting down appreciate it yeah let's talk intermittent fasting but beforehand okay. let's go through your credentials tell me about yourself tell okay. the audience about yourself and what you're doing right now I am a registered dietitian nutritionist okay. so a lot of people would be familiar with the term nutritionist or nutrition coach but not super familiar with the term registered dietitian so if you don't know to be a nutritionist you don't have to do anything you can basically just call yourself a nutritionist because that term is not protected. But to be a registered dietitian, you have to have a four-year Bachelor of Science degree, you have to do a year-long internship, you have to pass a national registration exam, you have to stay up on your continuing education, you have to be licensed in your state of practice, so you have to go through all the hoops to actually tell people how to I've already eat. given up the media of being a nutritionist. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, we've kind of taken over that word nutritionist to try to give it some power. Um, calling ourselves registered dietitian nutritionist, but just know if you're looking for nutrition information, try and make sure someone has that registered dietitian or RD credential behind their name. I figured I'd talk to the expert, but yeah, we, we were gonna, um, we talked about it, we were uh, messaging back and forth, and I said, you know, what's a good thing that we can talk about? Diet fads, and one of the ones is intermittent fasting. Yeah. Seems like everyone and anyone is trying it out in some form or fashion. I figured I'd defer to you right away. What's your definition of intermittent fasting? So everyone fasts every night. So I, I think people try to make this a lot more complicated than it actually is. Call it a fad diet, put a price on it, and sell it. But really, every time you go to sleep and you're not eating, you're fasting. So intermittent fasting is just paying attention to those hours that you're not eating and committing yourself to a certain number of hours where you're not putting any food or drink in your body. So. For example, if you went to bed tonight at 9 p.m., you didn't have any food or drink afterwards, and you didn't eat breakfast until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, that's a 12-hour fast. Okay. And I've heard that there are the go-to ones. I've heard 16-hour fast. Yep. I've it's heard, a popular one. I've heard 20-hour fast, <laughs> and then I've heard upwards of 24 hours, where someone will just go the full day, and then they can just save those calories and pass that on either to the next day or whatnot. I know that the objective as well is that by limiting an eating window, uh, you will ultimately probably eat less calories or you're more inclined to eat good foods. Yes. The problem
comes in is that some people just assume that because you're not eating that often, yes, I can still have Taco Bell. Yes, I can still have burgers. I can have the stuff that I don't like. So when you're making this adjustment, I always tie diet into lifestyle. So that does mean making that adjustment for there. So, you know, if anyone is looking at that, if you're making any sort of recommendation, are you also looking at the foods that they're putting in their body? Oh, yeah. There's no getting around what you eat matters. No matter what kind of diet it is, whether you're doing keto and all you eat is bacon, like, no, that's not going to be good for you. If you're doing intermittent fasting and you're eating Taco Bell every day, no, you're not going to be healthier for doing that. But that being said, when in studies, when they've taken people and they've said, okay, eat how you normally eat, we're going to make this other group eat the same exact way, so two groups eating the same exact amount of calories, Um, We're going to make one group eat them over a 15-hour period of the day, and we're going to make one group eat them over a smaller period of time, maybe a 10- or 12-hour window over the day. Mm -hmm. And what they've shown that if you're eating the exact same foods, you'll have a better reaction if you're eating them over a smaller window of the day. So, for example, more weight loss, uh, increased lean mass, so increased muscle, uh, better endurance, um, decreased markers of inflammation, so lower levels of cholesterol, lower levels of triglycerides, lower blood sugar. So they've seen all these good things come from taking exactly what you eat and just eating it over a smaller window of the day. But that's not to say that just eat whatever the hell you want as long as you're eating it within eight hours and you're going to be healthy. Of course, of course. Now one of the things too is I feel there's benefits that may be outside of weight loss. You were mentioning some of them. I feel too it gives time for the body to properly digest food. And I think it even goes back in some of the small little research I did is this is how the early humans were eating, you know, the hunter-gatherer era where they would spend all day trying to get something and then have a big meal or a reasonably sized meal and then do the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. What are those benefits when it comes to digestion and being able to give your body the right time to process it? Well, you start getting benefits at around 12 to 13 hours. So it doesn't have to be this multiple day fast or 20 hour fast. You don't have to do that to start seeing some of the benefits. I've seen benefits with clients just starting at 12 hours, especially with sleep. Okay. So if you think about it, um, when you're eating food, your body is digesting, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're digesting, your stomach is working, your intestines are working, your pancreas goes to work, your liver and your kidneys, they all go to work. Mm -hmm. So imagine you putting on your suit, going to work for the day, and then you don't stop working all day long. And then nighttime comes around and you have a before bed snack. And now guess what? You have to work all night long too. So giving those organs and giving your body a rest is just common sense. You wouldn't work as well as you would if you get a 12-hour rest, just like your organs aren't working as well. So that's why a lot of those markers come down or a lot of those lab values come down because your organs are actually getting a rest. So they get to work better the next day when they get some time off from digestion. So go back to the sleep thing. What I've noticed is people just sleep deeper The other thing is when you are digesting, your internal temperature increases by a few degrees. And so when you're hot and you're sweaty and you're tossing and you're turning, you're not going to sleep very well. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, insulin levels and blood sugar. So for people with diabetes, they're kind of, a lot of people are surprised by this because a lot of times when you have diabetes, you're told, eat every few hours to make sure your blood sugar levels stay stable. But what we've seen is that people that are fasting and do take some time off, and I think that's all about your body getting a rest, they've seen their fasting blood sugars actually go down. 
when the client comes in and maybe they they've done their research or a little bit of research and say, hey, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. What is what are you doing to kind of assess that to give them the proper answer to say, yes or no, this yeah. may not be for you. I always ask, what's your goal? What's your point? What's your point in wanting to do this? What's the outcome? What's the benefit that you're looking to get out of it? That's the biggest thing. And so a lot of people will see something that their friend is doing, that their cousin is doing, and they're getting results from it, and they'll come in and they'll be like, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why? Why do you want to do it? And what does your life look like? So if you're a shift worker and you work a day shift for a week and then an afternoon shift for a week and then a night shift for a week, does it make sense to have a, a cutoff time at 7 p.m. every night? Probably not. Can we still do some kind of a fasting regimen where we're changing those times every day where you're fasting or not fasting? Yeah, that would make sense. Um, I think a lot of people get caught up in the, okay, I've got to do this 16-hour thing because this is the popular thing that I've heard is working for people. But what I've found with most people is it has about a three-month three shelf life. So you do it for three months, you're like, I feel great, I lost weight, I'm getting all these benefits. And then it just kind of fizzles out and it gets hard and you don't want to do it anymore. Where I've, I've seen maybe a 12, a 13, a 14 hour fast be more sustainable for the long haul. Where most people don't find it super hard to just say, okay, I'm done at 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock at night. I don't need to put anything else in my body. If you think about it, you're usually not doing a kale shake at 9 p.m. That's <laughs> when you're going for the Sunday or the pizza, or you're heating up some popcorn, grabbing some chips, chocolate, something like that. If you're just done at 7 p.m., a lot of that stuff just kind of stops happening, which is another reason why I think people see benefits from fasting that aren't necessarily super scientific benefits. It's just, hey, you're not eating crap anymore past 7 o'clock. I've seen that be more sustainable just in my clients, a 12, 13, or 14-hour fast that you commit to. You say, I'm doing this either every night or five nights a week, you still get benefits from every single time that you do it. So just because you say like, well, I can't do this on the weekends, that's fine. Do it five days a week. Um, if 14 hours works for you and that's something that's sustainable, great, let's do that, let's try that. Or maybe let's try 12 hours first and see how that works for you. And then maybe next week we'll push it out to 13 hours. Then maybe next week we'll push it out to 14 hours. But I'm not gonna start you on a 16 to 20 hour fast right out of the gate because you're gonna probably hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you definitely don't want to shock your body. When you're, if you are saying to recommend to someone the intermittent fast, one of the things that in my research I found too is what is that meal that's gonna break the fast? And I've seen a lot of people recommend kind of starting slow. An apple, something to kind of get your glucose levels up and appropriate, some people have like a granola bar. In your you know history in dealing with this, what do you recommend? Yeah. So I would, number one, recommend that you're working with your body's natural circadian rhythms. I think that is super, super important. So my example of that is when the sun goes down, you're done with eating. When the sun comes up, you can start eating again. So going back to that just ancestral circadian rhythm that we have ingrained in us, I don't think it works as well when someone says, okay, I'm done eating by 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and then they start eating again the next day at 3 p.m. It's just not going to have the benefits that you see when you do work with that sun up, sun down. Um, But then that first meal should always have a complex carbohydrate source. So like something like a granola bar probably wouldn't be a good idea because it would have a lot of sugar in it. And so without having any carbohydrate in your system for 13, 14, 15 hours, 
Now you eat something that's very easy for your body to digest and turn into sugar. Mm -hmm. Now your blood sugar level is going to spike up because there's no buffer there for protein and fat. So first, if it's going to have carb, it needs to be complex, meaning there's fiber and there's nutrients in it. So something like an apple would have complex carbs, but I don't want you to eat that apple by itself. I need you to have some protein and some fat to go with it. So throw in some peanut butter, you've got some protein and fat, that's going to help buffer that sugar spike. And then it's gonna help keep you fuller longer, whereas if you just eat an apple or a granola bar, your eating fest is probably gonna start then and continue throughout your entire eating window. Yeah. Now for those who may have like an active job, you were talking about people with like day and night shifts. Mm -hmm. Typically those also involve very physically demanding jobs. How much do you also, when you're working with a client, do you assess that? Like, you know, keeping track of the pedometer that they have on their phone and they can say, wow, you know, I work in retail, I do 15,000 steps a day. You know, is that also put into the equation and then saying, I don't know if fasting's for you because you are in a physically demanding job? How do you assess that? Well, we definitely, in an initial consultation when I have someone come in, physical activity is definitely something that we talk about. Like, what does a typical day look like for you and what does your exercise routine look like? Mm -hmm. So for example, not necessarily having an active job, I don't think that would really deter me from working with them to try a fasting regimen. Mm -hmm. um, but the one thing that would deter me is, depending on their exercise schedule, if they're a late night exerciser, so if they're not going to the gym, let's say they're putting the kids down at eight o'clock and then they're heading out to the gym at 8.30, they're not getting home until 9.30, 10. And the last time they ate was maybe six or 7 p.m. for dinner. We don't know whether there's more benefit to getting some protein in your system to help you to repair or whether just putting nothing in the system and fasting is better. And I think it depends on the person. So I kind of ask people like, let's trial this for a week. Tell me how you feel. Do you feel more sore? Do you feel more tired the next day? Mm -hmm. Okay, well then maybe we need to just throw in a protein shake or something quick after that workout to help you to repair. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily the physicality of the job, of, of a day-to-day -day job, but more like when is your exercise routine and how do we make sure we're optimizing that repair time? Got it. So when someone is you know, maybe a standard nine to five job. They're like, listen, I only work out in the morning. I work out from 7.30 to 8.30, then I head to work, and I still wanna to stick to my 12 to eight eating window. Okay. By not eating for those three and a half hours afterwards where you're sweating and burning off those calories, yeah. is the body doing more damage than just simply someone who may be mentally tough and saying, I can last until lunchtime? I think the jury is out on that, and I think it depends on the person. Okay. So there are plenty of studies out there that tell us that getting something in the body, especially protein, within that 30-minute window of being done with exercise helps yeah. to jumpstart that repair of the muscles. Okay. So you're less likely to be sore, and you're more likely to get the most out of your workout. Mm -hmm. If you're going to fast afterwards, I don't think we've done those studies where we're comparing the people that give themselves 30 grams of protein after or decide to fast for three more hours. I think the first meal, your body's still going to utilize that protein to help with repair, but could you have been better repaired if you would have done that right after your workout? I think the best case scenario would be you start your eating window right after that workout and then you have to end your eating window just a little bit earlier, which at this time when it's daylight savings time would actually go along with that circadian rhythm better True. as well. True. Yeah, that's, I never thought of that. That makes sense. When you're dealing with that fasting period, the common thing that I've always seen is you can have coffee, mm -hmm. but I've heard different things out yeah. there. 
It's a big um, debate. <laughs> it's a big debate because it still has some form or fashion of calories. And they're saying, you know, black coffee, not even putting in things like the Splendas or whatnot, which for some people they really can't handle because it's like, I don't like that taste. I don't mind it personally, but what's your take on that? Yeah, I try to be as pure as possible when someone's doing it to just take out all the variables that we possibly can and say, unless you're going to die without caffeine, mm -hmm. it's nothing within that window except for water. Now, if you're going to die without coffee and you need that caffeine, fine, go ahead and do the black coffee. But that being said, just because coffee doesn't have calories doesn't mean it doesn't have antioxidants and chemical compounds that your body has to break down. Things are going to start working when you, as soon as you put that caffeine in the system. So I don't think you get all the benefits from fasting if you were having the black coffee. Mm -hmm. But that, so that being said, if your goal is weight loss, and by fasting, you're decreasing the amount of food that you're taking in. Coffee isn't contributing any calories to that. So if you're still sticking to that and your main goal is just weight loss, it's not necessarily any of the other benefits, then sure, try it. See what happens. Again, everybody's so different. Everyone's genetics are so different mm -hmm. that I would say, you know, do four weeks where you have no coffee. See how you feel. See what your results are. Do four weeks where you do. You know, keep switching, switching on and off and see what your results are. You have to use yourself as a human guinea pig, uh, and because nutrition is such a individualized science, mm -hmm. there is no right or wrong answer to here's the exact same thing that everybody needs to do in the world. What about when it comes to calorie restriction? I feel a lot of people are going to jump the gun and say, you know, normally I'm on a 2,000 calorie diet, I'm going to go to 1,600, but is it better to kind of slowly progress down to a point where it's not only healthy with whatever you advise, but can still help me if I am looking for weight loss, if that's the objective. It depends on the person. You know, it depends on how much activity you're doing. The first thing I want to make sure is that you are getting enough calories for your resting metabolic rate, meaning your body burns most of its calories just keeping you alive. We tend to think we burn all our calories exercising when in reality it's nowhere near the amount of calories your body burns just keeping your heart beating, your lungs breathing, all the things your body does that you don't even think about in a day, that burns your most calories. So when you go on a diet and you don't give your body enough calories to maintain that basic metabolic rate, your body starts to fight you back. And it says, hey, you're not giving me enough calories to keep us alive. What do I need to get rid of or not do so that I can make sure you stay alive? Because that's all our body wants to do. It doesn't care whether we're 900 pounds or 10 pounds it just wants to keep you alive so what it's going to do is it's going to steal calories away from something else it's going to make you tired and fatigued so you don't want to go run up a mountain because you don't have enough calories to keep your blood flowing mm -hmm. it's going to say okay well can we get rid of some of this muscle muscle is active tissue so what that's going to look like on the scale is weight loss you're going to get rid of muscle muscle weighs more than fat so on the scale, it's going to look like you're losing weight really quickly, but what's really happening is your metabolism is decreasing. And so eventually on that 1600 calorie diet, you'll notice that weight loss will plateau. And even though you're doing the exact same thing, all of a sudden you're not losing weight anymore. That means your body is smart and it readjusted its metabolic rate to meet what you were eating. So that's a big mistake that I see people doing is going on these super low calorie, starving themselves through the weight loss, and then guess what, you're gonna gain it right back and you're probably going to gain more because now your metabolic rate is lower than it was when you first started. 
probably smarter than you think it yes, is. Yes, it is. And, it, and if you feel like, if you're doing something and you feel like you're in a war with your body or you're battling your body, you're not doing the right thing. A diet or a lifestyle is not supposed to be like you're battling every, you're going to battle every day. That's mm-hmm. not what it's supposed to feel like. You and your body need to be on the same page for it to be something sustainable. Do you recommend any, like, technology for people who want to keep track of that for the BMI? Um, so as far as, like, tracking foods and things like that or figuring out what your basal metabolic rate is, Mm -hmm. just go, I think it's, like, caloriecalculator.net. It's a super easy website to use. All it does is, I think it uses the, um, the Mifflin St. Jor formula, which is, like, the same formula we would use in a hospital setting. You Mm -hmm. just type in your name, or not your name, your age, your height, your weight, and it, and how active you are, and it kind of pops out what it thinks your calorie level should be at. And then as far as tracking foods, if that was something that you wanted to do, MyFitnessPal is probably the best app that's out there just because they have the largest database of foods. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get a good idea of, well, what does a normal day really look like for me? Let me track everything and just kind of see where I'm landing. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good app. What about as far as like um, heart monitoring, pedometer type of stuff, you know, Fitbits, I know some, there's like the one that goes around the chest as well. Is there any is there any flaw in that? Can it be skewed and it not really truly reflect what your output is? Well, I, I try to encourage people to not get in that game of calories in versus calories out and playing that, oh, if I exercise 400 calories worth, then I get to eat 400 calories more. Mm-hmm. You need to give yourself a goal for every single day, accounting for your average exercise, and stick with that goal every day. Because as soon as you get into playing that game, oftentimes what happens is people way overestimate what they're burning and way underestimate what they're putting in. Even if you're super smart, you know a lot about food, you know a lot about exercise, it's just human nature to do that. And so what ends up happening is you just even out. And so you're putting in all this effort, you're tracking all your foods, you're doing your exercise, you're doing all of this counting, and then you're not seeing anything actually happen. And usually what's happening is you're overestimating exercise, underestimating what you're taking in, and you're playing that game of in versus out. Makes sense. When uh, the fast is reaching the end of that, sorry, of the eating window is ending, and then you wake up the next day, sometimes, and I'm sure other people can attest to it as well, they're going to wake up and they're like, I am much hungrier than I thought I was. I get that it can be person to person, but do you make recommendations for stay away from this being included in your last meal? Or, you know, I I would say things like desserts and sugars where the carbs maybe aren't as filling as protein or maybe, you know, a good fat. Um, Do you make any recommendations like that to say stay away from these things? I think across the board, just like we talked about with that breakfast, you're not, you're not wanting to have just a granola bar or just the apple. Same thing for the end of the day meal. You need to make sure that there's, if there's carb, it's got fiber and it's got nutrients. If there's protein, it needs to be a lean protein. And if there's fat, there needs to be some healthy fat there. And by pairing all three of those macronutrients together, you help to stabilize those blood sugars and stabilize your hunger levels too. So whether it's your first, your middle, or your last meal, that's a good, those are good parameters to look at for each meal to make sure you've got everything you need there and kind of stabilize your hunger levels. From a goal setting perspective, how long do you recommend someone before they have a cheat meal? Um, I, I don't know. I hate, I kind of hate that term because what are you cheating on? Like, are you cheating on yourself? Are you cheating on your life? Like, it's just, 
I, I, and then that being said, that doesn't mean I don't think you should go eat pizza on Fridays. Yeah, go eat pizza on Fridays. What we need to figure out is what is the balance that makes sense for you over time that gets you re- the results that you want. So if that means ordering pizza with your family on Friday night and then Saturday night you kind of go out to whatever new restaurant you want to try and you eat whatever you want, you can do that every single week and you can get the results that you want, perfect. When you look at it as, I'm going to be perfect all week long and then Saturday's my cheat day. Of course, you're going to eat 5,000, 6,000 calories. You're going to go crazy. You're going to feel like this is the only time that I have to actually eat what I want. I don't want people to feel like that. I want you to enjoy the food that you're eating on Monday as well as enjoying the food that you're eating on Saturday. So, like I said before, if it feels like you're waging a war all week long and then Saturday is the only day that you get to relax and do what you want, then we need to change something. We need to make the foods that you're eating Monday through Friday more exciting for you, more filling for you, more satisfying for you. And we can do that with good, healthy foods. Yeah. Do you recommend, if that's the case, if someone's in that mindset, that maybe meal prepping and getting ahead saying, hey, this is money I've already spent, it, it's going to go bad on Saturday because I made these plans and oh, woe is me. Does meal prepping help in that from a mental standpoint? I think the more decisions that you can make ahead of time, the better off you're going to be. So if you've got something that's already prepped that you know tastes good and that you enjoy, of course you're just... Hello, Nutrition Awareness Podcast listeners. Today, you have Megan here as your host. I'm filling in for Kate, and I am here with the Pasture Brothers, (laughs) Um, Norman Evan. So can you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Okay. My name's Norm. Um, I started chicken farming this past year. Um, I also work as a welder and a fabricator, Um, and that's pretty much it. So second career chicken farmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I'm Evan, um, the other half of Pasture Brothers, and chicken farmer. Uh, we can maybe talk a little bit about how the whole thing got started, but before this, I was in tech sales. Um, I'm now focusing really more full time on farming and providing better food for folks in the Orlando area. Okay, are you guys from Orlando, or how did you meet? How did this. How did the Pasture Brothers form? Yeah, because you're obviously not not actual brothers. No, we're not actual. <laughs> no, if you couldn't tell by looking at us. Yeah, we're not we're actually brothers. Oh, <laughs> um, we, uh, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah, we've known each other since fifth grade. Yeah, since yeah, fifth, fifth grade, so. and like not only that, I mean, we grew up down the street from each other, so in the same neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. Um, in Orlando. In Orlando. In Orlando. Yeah, and then we uh, went to. So it was elementary school, middle school, high school. We both went to University of Florida together even. And then, um, yeah, I've been friends ever since. Any background in farming growing up? Or did you have any interests? Did you see yourselves becoming farmers at any point? Uh, No, not at all. I mean, uh, my dad's side of the family, there's like uh, up in Kentucky, there's definitely a lot of people that do. I'm very Mm -hmm. close to the family, but I was never like really close to that or part of that. Okay. Um, Yeah. For me, he had no background in farming at all. I was always interested in food. My first job out of college was at a startup that actually was in the food space. It was these two guys that were my age out of Berkeley, California, and they figured out a way to grow gourmet mushrooms on coffee ground waste. Okay. And so they would go around to coffee shops, pick up the spent coffee grounds, uh-huh. and they would use that as the soil for cool. those mushrooms. So yeah. this, they put together this kit, a grow-at-home mushroom kit. Uh-huh. 
And um, my first job out of college was working for them, doing sales in the Southeast and getting the mushroom kits into different stores and whatnot. And that was really my first foray and kind of taught me about sustainability and the food space and that kind of thing. Um, and I think they're still around. They're called Back to the Roots, if you want to look those guys up. Yeah, but for sure. I'd be interested in the nutritional value of a mushroom grown from coffee beans and if it would be any different. Yeah, I don't know if it affects it much. Any caffeine medium. in those mushrooms? <laughs> There's probably some trace <laughs> caffeine, but you'd have to probably down a lot of mushrooms to really <laughs> right, for right. a cup of coffee. But other than that, no farming background at all. Okay. For me, yeah. And so. Yeah, so as we were chatting a little bit before we started recording, you guys became passionate about bringing some better food to Orlando. So how did that start? Yeah, um, so I guess like a little more background on myself. I, I went to uh, UF with Evan, but I, I ended up doing my master's in sustainable design. Um, so that's where I got kind of interested in all that. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like for me, I guess. So mm-hmm. I kind of moved on to other things. But something that always kind of struck me was, um, you know, the, the biggest impact we can make on sustainability is like the small things in our lives and, you know, agriculture, because agriculture is involved in everything. So um, that was kind of our focus of it, you know, just like we were talking about, um, there's not a lot of that kind of stuff around here. So we were looking for it ourselves and we couldn't find it. So we were like, hey, let's try and raise some chickens. Let's see what happens. And Why chicken instead of beef, instead of eggs, instead of goats or anything else? Why, why did we land on chicken? Yeah, well, there's uh, there's kind of tactical advantages of just sure, yeah. people that haven't farmed before. Chickens are relatively easy in terms of they're small animals, so it's not like a cow where you need a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Um, ours are raised in coops that we built, and we can put um, you know up to about a hundred in in this one coop that's sixteen feet by sixteen feet. Okay. So it's manageable. Um, there's a relatively quick turnaround time from the day that they hatch till the time that they're market ready. For us, it's about three months. Okay. As opposed to a larger animal, if you're going to raise them from a baby until they're fully mature adult, it's going to be, you know, probably years mm-hmm. in the case of, of larger animals. Um, and that's just a lot more capital intensive and all that kind of stuff. And you need a lot of land for that kind of thing. We didn't have any access to land mm-hmm. whatsoever. We Did you any trials of like, let me just uh, raise this chicken in my backyard and see what happens before <laughs> before you started looking for really land or anything an like that? For us. Okay. Yeah. Um, the backyard situation. Yeah, no, just where we live and stuff, it just wouldn't have worked out. Okay. But like another reason for chicken was just we eat so much chicken, right? Mm-hmm. I think you go back 50, 60 years ago, and I don't think that's how American diets were. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot more other stuff, and then chicken is... You know, you can even kind of seen as a delicacy back in the day. But now, since it's like, because of the things we talked about, you know, if it's obviously a good jumping point for us to get in, you know, for big businesses, also those things also benefit them too. Mm-hmm. So just, yeah, the amount that we eat, and it was maybe something that we could make an impact a little bit quicker, I guess, right, okay. from, from, you know, our original thoughts on everything mm-hmm. like when we started. So, yeah. It was always intended to be kind of a, a test, a, a pilot run, a trial run see if we can even raise these birds in the first place, mm-hmm. see if there's other folks that are interested in buying them from us, seeing if, uh, you know, they taste better, they, you know, just what the whole experience is like. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't want to pour all this time and all these resources into something that was, uh, you know, 
that would get us in over our heads, I guess. And so chickens seemed like something that was manageable and the right kind of thing. Because, yeah, the other thing, too, is like Norman said, we eat a ton of chicken already. Right, so yeah. So we start there. Mm-hmm. So the, the gateway farming. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that's a great yeah. gateway. <laughs> um, had you tried <laughs> pasture-raised chicken before doing this? And had you noticed a big difference and that was kind of pushed you in that direction? Had you been able to find it anywhere? So for me, no, I hadn't. But... Um, I've eaten a lot of, like, you know, you can get into labeling, but, like, free range and mm-hmm. different things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do notice that, you know, there's a difference. Um, I think if I eat, you know, if you read one of our birds versus something you buy in Publix now, yeah, there's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, before that, no, no. Because they're, they're really, in our area, there's mm-hmm. two people, two or three other guys that were doing it. Talk yeah. to me about the differences. So, like, how is it taste is it juiciness is it how it looks yeah there's a, I mean, so, a yeah, all full that. spectrum of of differences yeah i mean the way that it looks you know the conventional chicken that you are going to buy at the store 99 percent of the time is going to be a totally different breed of bird from what we're raising um, it's probably going to be a cornish cross it's going to be the type of bird that's been genetically quote-unquote enhanced by the chicken industry over the course of the past close to 100 years to just grow as fast as possible, uh, be able not be to, able to move. Yeah, in a very Big small breasts. space, huge <laughs> breast meat, and all, they can't even really stand when you see them mm-hmm. in real life. So that's not the kind of animal that we really were interested in raising ourselves. So when you see our bird, whether it's when you buy it from us, you know, fully processed and packaged and ready to throw in the oven, or when you actually see it out in the pasture when we're raising it on the farm, it's uh, a totally different kind of animal. It doesn't have the huge breast meat. It has actually a lot bigger legs, like our birds have. Yeah, Because they're, they're running around. They're yeah, mus- they've got muscles. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. And, so. then, like, and you know, another thing is, I think, super important is, um, you know, we don't use any kind of artificial light cycles. Like, in, you know, conventional chicken farm, they've, they've got lights running all the time, so the birds are always active, so they're always eating. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, I think, a big difference, too. Um, because you can raise Cornish cross, like, they're not particularly what we want to do, but in the right environment, they can be a lot healthier alternative than, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I think some people maybe kind of look at the breed as something cursed. Okay, so I had an idea at one point that I brought up to some cattle farmers where I said, hey, what if we could just scan the label on the chicken, the beef, the whatever, and it would show us where that cow or chicken was raised, where it was processed, and every little step that it went through to get to mm-hmm. the consumer, wouldn't that be awesome? That would be really cool. They were all like, no, that would not be awesome because it would cost so much more money that the consumer would not pay the extra money required in order for that to yeah. happen. If that was on the farmer's back to actually provide that technology i guess i don't know who's who's back it would be on or it was just an idea because i'm I'm thinking like you know so many people care about this but when it's once you get to the grocery store it seems like well i don't really have a choice because it doesn't tell me if this came from kentucky or florida or if it went to cargo in texas to get processed or anything i don't know anything about it and how can i know more about it other than going to your farm or going to a farmer's market and knowing the actual farmer, which I think right now people aren't just taking, just aren't Yeah, taking that's that really step. tough. I mean, it's really tough because you want it to be as frictionless, so to speak, of an uh, experience for your customers to really see where your food comes from. 
And right now, um, when you go to the grocery stores, yeah, you're just really seeing kind of those cheery, happy food labels that you kind of, for the most part, just take at face value. If I see the word natural, and I see a pretty cartoon picture on the label of a green pasture and a red barn and some animals outside, I'm like, well, that looks happy enough. And, and you pay no an extra $3 way. just yeah. because of that. Right. <laughs> you exactly. feel a little bit better about it. Ex- yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I, I mean, I love that idea. Like, uh, you know, that we post so much on social media to try to make it easy for folks to see. But even that, you know, not everyone necessarily is on Instagram or sure. whatever, and they shouldn't have to be. Like, it shouldn't be that hard uh, to see where your food comes from. So hopefully someone, some young technology <laughs> entrepreneur, I don't know, can come up with an app like that. That'd be yeah. really cool. That would be cool. But I also think that, uh, yeah, there's definitely a disincentive for the big food industry to um, allow something like that. Uh, they don't really want you to see that, like we talked about before. And even, I mean, I've, I've seen some things recently of small farmers who are very real about what goes on at the farm and, you know, show everything from how animals are born and raised to the eventual slaughtering process. And, you know, they obviously, uh, you know, that's obviously some, some very real content if you're actually showing the slaughtering process, mm-hmm. but also it's for the person that really wants to see what goes on, there should be the ability, I think personally, to actually see that firsthand. Not that it should just be freely available without any kind of warning or whatever, but I've seen that um, today the bigger kind of platforms are starting to make it much harder for farmers like that to post content um, of the slaughtering process. That's obviously a controversial kind of th- kind of thing, but it kind of feels like that's going a little bit in the wrong direction in terms of allowing for transparency, kind of a slippery slope kind of thing. So Yeah, it, it's really easy for us today to have that chicken sandwich in front of us and never really think about how it got there. Right. And right. because you see this breast and you don't realize that it was part of an animal. Like mm-hmm. it, we don't we didn't even realize that these days when we're looking at our plates, but I mean, the tough truth of it is it had to go through something. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to support eating meat, then you really should be knowing how it got to your plate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot with just, we're very desensitized to like just how our food gets to us. Yeah. Just 99% of people, I feel like just have no idea. They just go to a store and buy it. And I think that goes, you know, it's like, like you were saying with, you know, if, if you want if you're going to continue to eat it, it's better to at least know that the animals are going through a good life, right? But also, it's like we're desensitized in terms of the costs of food. Like, because they're giant industries, you know, it's kind of, it's like, it's a, it's a very unrealistic cost what you would pay mm-hmm. for the bottom line chicken. Mm-hmm. And I think it's unfortunate for small farmers because it's like we obviously can't afford to do things the same as big businesses. But there's like a, because we're so desensitized, everyone thinks of chicken is the same across the board, or beef is the same across the board, and when it's not like that, it's it's very much where it comes from. Like, even in Central Florida, the other farmers we know of, we don't necessarily do chicken the same way, just because we might be down the road, water land's a little different, you know, and it's, I guess all that kind of thing, if you commodify, commodify food, right, it's, uh, it's a little bit dangerous to 
make it too convenient because then you just have no option to even know anything about it, you know? There's no respect there. It's like no chicken's respect. very easy to come by mm-hmm. when it's that mass-produced chicken, whereas right. your chicken mm-hmm. isn't as easy to come by, right. and it, it, it's a right. special thing. Yeah. Where, totally. you know... And then even that's kind of unfortunate because it's like, uh, should good quality food be considered special? <laughs> you know? It is now, right. you know? Um, it's like that's yeah. an unfortunate, uh, like place to be in I guess you know yeah or just to look at it the other way like should 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 cheap food just be so easy to come by necessarily I mean should we look at food that comes from an animal from something that was alive a living thing as just this commodity or should there really be some you know quote-unquote kind of sanctity to it and some real understanding to it so that we don't get you know into this system where we don't know where things come from and we're just treating everything as if it's just this inanimate object that we just consume without thinking. I think that that's not a healthy way for, you know, the society that I'm, that I want to be a part of to go. Yeah. That's a super convenient thing and everything is just that you hand money and then, you know, it's like, it it just disconnects you from real things and like food and farming that's like about as human as it gets you Mm -hmm, know as long mm -hmm. as we've been here we've basically been doing that since you guys have started doing this do you think you consume less meat i do yeah absolutely overall and i think about it a lot more Mm -hmm. Um, not in the sense of like oh i don't want to eat this anymore but it's like i think about anytime i eat meat like "Eh, i came from somewhere you know yeah and it's a good thing yeah i think Mm -hmm. I, I don't buy any chicken now unless I don't, the only chicken yeah. I can eat is our chicken. Yeah. Um, aside from that, I mean, I'm more thoughtful about the meat I consume. I don't think I necessarily eat it less in general, but it's the type of meat that I, that I eat and, you know, the places where I get it. Now, if I can't source it from a local farmer, I'll definitely second guess whether I get it at all. But we have been able to get plugged in just by way of getting into the farm scene ourselves here in mm-hmm. Central Florida and making friends with other local farmers that we kind of know who we can get um, good quality stuff from. Mm-hmm. But obviously we understand that not everyone, most people in fact, are, you know, are not that way and it's really not easy um, to find that kind of stuff. So that's a challenge. Okay, so if I'm a person that wants to start paying more attention to this and, and buying better meat products what where do i go what do i do where do i get your stuff how do i get connected with these farmers um yeah i guess it's it's an interesting uh question because i've never really thought about it from that side um like i think for us the easiest way to kind of understand what we're doing is probably follow us like on instagram but um what's your handle uh just pasture brothers okay um and if you'd like to like actually you know um purchase a bird or We've, Evans wrote a bunch of awesome blog posts on there too, but our actual website is where you would get our stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the local Orlando area, you can order online and then we'll work out a way to get it to you. Okay. Yeah. And are they always available or are there certain times when they come of age, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, well, we raise them in small batches still. I don't think we've had more than five total batches now yeah. of birds and it's up to about 80 birds at a time is the most right that we've done so we pretty much have them until they sell out and then we're raising the next batch gotcha so the availability is is on the website gotcha so when you buy a chicken do you buy a whole chicken yes yes Yes. yep that's that's what we currently offer right now is whole birds the whole birds yeah 
And then the, not the cuts of meat, but we do offer the organ meats, like the livers mm -hmm. and feet and things like that. Yeah, we got livers, feet, heads, gizzards. Some people choose to do the, the necks and the heads and right. some of that kind of stuff and actually make it into dog food, which uh, that's becoming more of a thing now, mm -hmm. obviously, people being thoughtful about what they feed their dog. Um, and, and that's so, important to us. Like, we want, you know, we want the whole bird to be utilized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Anyway, as much as possible. Nothing goes to waste. Right. So, yeah. But in terms of other farmers and how to get access to... Um, good local food. I mean, there are websites. I think Local Harvest is one that you can go on and kind of type in what you're looking for in your area. I think mm -hmm. Eat Wild is another one that you can kind of, I think that focuses more on local meat and folks that do more grass pasture-based farming. Yeah. And uh, Have you guys ever tried Butcher Box? Like no, but I've, I haven't tried I've, it. I've heard of it. They've sent me some of their stuff and, and I ordered from them a couple times, um, but they do salmon, beef, they have chicken now as well, and it's all grass-fed, pasture-raised yeah, type stuff, and then they send awesome. you pictures of, like, the farms and the people and all that kind of stuff, so yeah. that, that's an option for that I give my clients that it's not necessarily local to Florida or to Orlando, right. but you know where your stuff's coming from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. stuff like that's beautiful, for <laughs> sure. I mean, if you don't have folks that are local to you that you can find easily, I mean, yeah. that sounds like an awesome option. Yeah, and especially, like, you know, kind of right now, it's really important because we don't have enough, you know, like we were talking about, there's not enough local meat producers in Orlando, not enough you know, just produce producers in Orlando. Um, and if you get kind of get these little food deserts, like, just because you're in a spot that doesn't have what you need, um, you know, maybe you can go a little distance or use a service like uh, you were talking about, mm -hmm. yeah, to get what you need. I think mm -hmm. it's worth it. Um, you know, local something we definitely try and push, though, like, um, because... You know, things that you eat probably should be grown around you. You know, there's no really sense in something coming from, like, I don't necessarily need an orange from California to come right. here. You know, <laughs> right. We, we can do that here. You know, yeah. 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 Yeah, especially in Orlando. I mean, I was really inspired by Rob Greenfield, who was yeah. just uh, spent, he's a food activist, and he was just in Orlando for two years. He ate only food that he grew or foraged himself yeah, for an entire year. Guy. He lived right in Winter Park. Yeah. Um, and I went and saw his his uh, talk the other day, right after he had completed it, and it's really amazing when you start to think, wow. I mean, you can grow all of your own food, you know, um, and it seems crazy sometimes because we are so disconnected from it today. I mean, I do a little backyard gardening myself, and anytime friends come over, they're just kind of blown away. Yeah, see, <laughs> it's like, amazing. Vegetables yeah. growing mm -hmm. there. That's so different and it's the kind of thing that our grandparents would probably just you know be laughing at us because right. all of them they did it not for as a hobby but kind of as, as a necessity yeah i mean throughout history so it's becoming cool again it is yeah, <laughs> right like which is great well, that's great <laughs> yeah hopefully that continues to be the trend i mean that's the thing you know I, I like to tell people like one of the greatest things about doing this for the last little over years like, agriculture is a lot of fun, mm -hmm. you know. I think a lot of people uh, would have a lot of fun, and maybe it's something they might be passionate about, but it's like, unfortunately, we don't have those avenues to get introduced to it. You know? mm -hmm. So I would encourage anybody, you know, if you want to really know what your food is, like, grow it yourself. You know? Yeah. Like, I think that's the way to go. We'll and you guys invite that. people out to the farm, right? Yeah. People can come totally. out anytime and kind of see what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we welcome folks out. Uh, you know, we would love... 
to get into a space where we can start eventually doing things like field trips and having kids out more and make an education a bigger part of it. Yeah. I mean, we go into schools yeah. now. I've been starting to go into elementary schools, and we have a whole slide presentation about how we partner with chickens for a healthier environment. Cool. And it's so great because it's such a perfect kind of thing for kids to see the little videos of chickens running around and understanding, oh, you know, this is where my Chick-fil-A sandwich comes from. Yeah. This is a chicken. Yeah, which is um, a funny conversation with little it's kids. A, yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Some of them take to it better than others, but <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's like better now than, I don't know, way down the road. So we make it fun for them. And anyways, yeah, it's, it's all about educating. We think the, the earlier, the better. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of more opportunity, I think, for that kind of transparency in agriculture. What do your chickens eat? Okay, so uh, they have a, a feed. It's just a, a regular chicken feed um, for meat chickens. So our chickens are obviously growing a little bit faster. But um, their diet is probably like 70% feed and like 30% things in the coop. So whether it be grass or, you know, sometimes there's all kinds of like little different weeds in there or mm-hmm. a lot of different protein sources. So like a lot of bugs, worms, um, crickets, like what you can... I mean, I'm sure there's even mice that get in there. Cause, yeah. Yeah, yeah lizards. They, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're true omnivores. Seen some of those YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> Chickens going after the, the mice. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it's a good thing they're not bigger than us because we would get eaten oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> immediately, you know. Yeah, our but, birds are pretty sweet in nature, but, like, when you're around them, enough, you realize they're like little dinosaurs. Yeah, Definitely. yeah. Definitely. Can you tell mm-hmm. if chickens are happy? <laughs> so, it, that's, that's, like, a hard question because it's, like, I don't think chickens really think of happiness like we do but I think if they act like an animal should you know it's walking around foraging um, you know bathing in the sun like whatever like Mm -hmm. yeah in in that sense I think they're much happier comparatively speaking yeah Um, we say we don't aim for happiness we aim for chickenness right okay that makes sense it's like if it's acting like a chicken um, then our goal is complete right you know we're just trying to not inhibit anything about that chicken's natural instincts that makes it that way. And living outside on the pasture, in the sun, fresh air, eating bugs, chasing after lizards, grasshoppers, whatever it is, uh, that's what chickens are supposed to do. Yeah, they're just manifesting their destiny. Exactly, yeah. Do you get attached to your animals? Have you named any of them? (laughs) So. How do you prevent that from happening? uh, I don't name any. Um, I definitely get attached in the sense of, like, I'm grateful for them, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to, like, harvest time. Um, and that's, like, you know, I'll be frank with people. It's, like, a interestingly emotional time, I guess, just because it's, it's just a lot. You're just thinking about a lot. Um, it's never where I, like, I don't necessarily feel bad for them or anything like that. But, yeah, it's a not in the sense of, like, I'm really attached to my dog. But I definitely, like, care about the birds and their mm-hmm. well-being. And mm-hmm. It's it's unfortunate. It's like when processing happens, it's like, well, I need this to happen for me to be able to continue doing what I'm doing. But it's like, eh, just spent, you know, three months. Because each little group's a little different. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. There's more of a reverence yeah. in it. Sure, yeah, sure. Reverence Absolutely. is a great word. Great word. Yeah. Yeah, anything you spend that much time with, you know, you build a kind of relationship with. But at the end of the day, they're not pets, right? It's like this is our food. They're serving that purpose. And, uh, and yeah, but you can't help but feeling some kind of tinge of, you know, emotion or kind of whatever it is at the end of the day. Right. Because it's like a lot of hard work coming to kind of fruition. 
So there's a lot. There's a lot of feelings, yeah, at the end. And that's another important thing, too, that, uh, you know, folks, you kind of get away from when you're disconnected from food. But farmers have a very close connection with is are those feelings of that appreciation for your food, the work that goes into it, and the blood, sweat, and tears sure. that you poured, yeah. you know, no days off. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, it's weird to have to do something like, like, I think you get so accustomed, like, you go, you do your job, you get a paycheck, you know, and that's like... It's like I can show up and do my job and get my paycheck, but if I just showed up every day and didn't do the things that were kind of hard with farming, mm-hmm. like it wouldn't work, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's worth it. It's worth it, and I think uh, everybody could grow a little bit if they, you know, kind of have to put yourself in those decision-making places. I think it's good for everybody in some kind of way. So after about a, I guess about a year of doing this, it seems like you guys are kind of all in. It doesn't seem like you're backing <laughs> yeah, away. It seems like you're getting getting further, further in. Yeah, I would say yeah. so. I'm, um, yeah, we're. I mean, like right now, we're kind of looking at a, a new piece of land that we're trying to move to, and if that would work out, it would open up, you know, a lot of possibilities. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I guess every month we go, it's always a little deeper. It's funny. I mean, <laughs> sort of business is not what you think, and it's doesn't right. end up like you know, predictably. I guess where we thought we'd be a year from, like, last year versus now is different in my head. Yeah. But it's like we're in a better place, I think, than we could have been. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, there's just so much more opportunity to, to serve more folks. And um, our goal is just to kind of, you know, hopefully serve more of the community, hopefully educate more young people and people in general about a better way to farm. And, I mean, we love, we really love doing it. I mean, that's the biggest thing, too. It's not, we, we wouldn't continue doing this if we didn't really love it and feel like it was it was beneficial. Yeah, it's not the kind so, of job you can, like, hate and keep doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, this just right. doesn't work like that. Right. So, yeah, we're very, uh, we're very optimistic that we can continue doing it and that more people will, uh, will, will pick up on it as well. So. So chickens that are used for meat. Are they all male so they don't lay eggs, or do they also lay eggs? So, um, it's a mixture. Like, generally what you get, it's pretty hard to tell, like, from a carcass. Generally, I mean, if it's a really big, full bird, then it's probably a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there isn't really much distinction. Uh, obviously, um, well, not obviously, because obviously it's different for all kinds of animals, but male chickens are larger than females. Mm-hmm. So, like, in, in our terms, we we prefer to have males because that's, that's what we order. Um, okay. There's always a couple of hens that get in there, because it's hard okay. to tell. But in the same amount of time, they're about 20% larger. Um, and then it, there's also not a lot of usage for roosters, unfortunately, besides that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, in my head, it's like, well, if we don't get them... What's going to happen to them? Right? Yeah. And what does happen to them is really unfortunate. Like, they're literally just like a hatch and a thrown in a trash can. Wow. You know, that's... And does that happen <laughs> right after they're born? Then they like they would be born, and they're like, "Oh, this is a male. See you later. We don't need you for anything." Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't know you don't need a rooster to have an egg. Right. Chickens are going to lay eggs right. every day, regardless if there's a rooster around. Right. And you don't want to yeah. get a fertilized egg. Yeah. No, that would be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think a lot of a lot of people know that. I think that you think about it in terms of like an egg has to there has to be a male and a female to have an mm-hmm. egg, but it's mm-hmm. really just. You don't need the roost. <laughs> no, no, yeah. And we get asked a lot, like, do we do eggs as well? And we don't have any egg-laying birds yet. But in terms of growing for the future, that would, it's definitely something we would love to do. 
yeah. in the future. It's kind of the thing, one thing at a time. Yeah. Right, because it's like you think, oh, chickens, you know how to raise them, like you can do them all. It's, but egg birds are completely very different. different. You know, they need they have very different dietary needs, they have okay. very different space needs. So when we get into that, we want to do it right, you know. Mm-hmm. So. so what's next? Oh, <laughs> so much. Like, uh, we have... Uh, what do we have to look forward to in 2020? We're nearing the end of 2019, so what's on the books? So hopefully, um, if we can get this uh, another piece of land that we're looking at right now. And where are, where are you guys located? So now? we're in Apopka now, and okay. where we've been moving is, like, kind of over Sorrento area. Okay. Um, so there's, uh, been there's a, hills over there. I know. It's <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful, and it's, uh, it's super quiet. But, you know, it's, like, perfect because it's not too far from Orlando. Um, and it's like even cool, you know, maybe if you wanted to come get a bird, you can get out of Orlando for a minute, you mm-hmm. know, it's what, 30 minutes or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, like a lot of growth, uh, contingent on, you know, a lot of things, but, um, for me personally, it's like if we can continue to try and get the word out, you know, educate people on their food, where it comes from, um, that's, that's where like my head and my heart's at, you know, mm-hmm. so. And mostly kids going into schools are you wanting to do classes for adults or do workshops or have people out to the farm anyone that would have us if you know if there's interest in that i think our presentation for the kids i think the teachers from the feedback we've gotten the teachers have learned almost as much as the kids have Mm -hmm. honestly Mm -hmm. because uh you just don't interact with farmers too often these days yeah so yeah we would love to do the same kind of thing at for you know, other groups of, of, of local folks, you know, whatever the age. Yeah. Um, kids is really cool. I mean, it goes into the whole sustainability mindset. Right. It's like if this information just dies with us without the next generation taking to it, then it's really, that's not sustainable mm-hmm. because it's, it's gone. So we have to make sure that young people are aware of this kind of thing. But at the same time, you're never too old to start something new in my opinion so absolutely if we can educate folks that maybe have lived on the conventional american diet for their whole lives and we can turn them on to a better way of uh, thinking about their food and a better source for their food that's actually better for them better for the animals better for the environment then you know over time that can make a big difference in that individual's life and maybe in their family and their friends lives if they can get more of that information as well yeah who knows like you might like really like you know agriculture or growing mm-hmm. your own food and it might change your life yeah. yeah and i want to be really clear about this so as a normal consumer you've probably never had a pasture raised chicken you've probably yeah. never tasted that even if yeah, you've searched right. for it or you've, you've probably never actually tasted that before mm-hmm. so that's it, true that's it's true. time <laughs> neither of us had before we got into this yeah we took the labels at face value and right. then come to find out that they really don't mean what they thought we did. Mm-hmm. So. And I think even pasture, like, I mean, that's obviously what we do. Um, but, you know, a good word for it, too, is, like, traditional, just, like, how food used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we get a lot of, like, uh, not, I want to say older, but um, a little bit older than myself, people that maybe at my parents' age and stuff that order that get our birds, and they're like, this reminds me of my childhood. This, this is how chicken used, used to taste. To eat, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. the coolest thing. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, uh, that's. Because we don't know, yeah. we really don't know the difference, but they've probably tasted the difference. Right. And right. they have probably haven't had that taste for 30, 40 years. Sure. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. That's, that's kind of the coolest thing to hear 
honestly, because it's such a raw kind of uh, kind of testimonial, you know. Yeah, it's like so. we know we're doing a good job. So <laughs> you of something like that. That's yeah, like, that's a yeah. Good feeling. So we love that. So we want to keep doing that. Awesome. Any parting words for the audience? If you had an ask of the audience or maybe any advice on how you can learn more about where your food is coming from? I would say, for me, just, you know, ask questions, whether it be food or plenty of other things, like, you know, the things we talked about today could relate to a lot of stuff in our lives, just convenience, you know. Um, Explore what you're doing, what you're eating, you know, in the same way that, you enjoy like your hobbies, you know, and you should look at food like that because it's about the most important decision you make every day, like three or four times a day. You know? Exactly. So that's uh, all I can probably say. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, and also just just don't think that anything is is too difficult necessarily. I mean, we didn't know about chicken farming whatsoever, and we've been able to kind of relatively successfully, I guess you could say, you know, become chicken farmers, um, at least provide a small group of people um, some high quality um, food, you know, that's pretty awesome. But not everyone has to do that or probably wants to do that or is interested in that. If you just want to buy some seeds from a local, um, you know, nursery and try to grow some vegetables in your backyard, all you really need is a decent sized pot and you can grow some food in your backyard so kale grows really hard. well here kale grows <laughs> it just well keeps after. going and going and going yeah i probably got 10 <laughs> or 12 pounds of kale out of my like four yeah. by four yeah garden last year so so just don't think that you can't do it don't think you can't find uh high quality food like there's more than enough information out there if you if you if you look hard enough and you can also probably do it yourself i mean again i would really look into rob greenfield and what he did eating only food that he raised or forged all by himself for an entire year here in Orlando. It's pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, anything's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I I appreciate you guys being here and educating us more on chickens and where they come from and what they eat. Mm -hmm. So people can find you on Instagram at Pasture Brothers, Mm -hmm. and your website is PastureBrothers.com, where if you want to try some of their chickens, you can go ahead and put in an order right on the website, right? That's right. Awesome. Anything special for the holidays? You guys have any kind of specials, or are you selling a lot of birds for the holidays? Or Um, We're on a work to convince people to uh, eat chickens instead of turkeys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're, uh, for the we've had some success with that so far. <laughs> cool. We had some folks that were uh, trading out the turkey. Yeah. Um, you know, save some money. Uh, still going to have plenty of leftovers. Uh, uh, How many pounds are a typical think. chicken? Typical chicken? Probably four and a half pounds. Yeah, okay. four or five. Somewhere. We've got some, some ones that are quite a bit bigger. Yeah, so. we've got some mini turkeys, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got some smaller ones, too, that are great for, like, if it was, like, one or two people. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you again. Hopefully we'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah. Sounds good.